All right, I want to invite you to turn to your uh, Bibles in, uh, or to, to John chapter 19, okay? Um, we're going to start with the second half of verse 16. We, we, we did read the, or went through the first half of verse 16 a couple weeks ago. We're going to finish up the chapter this morning. If you have one of our Bibles, it's on page 962. We, uh, we paused chapter 19 last week, again, while I was gone preaching at Crosspoint, and Grant Stouter was here from Christ Community in, in Gridley. He revisited Jesus' interaction with the lame man in chapter 5. I listened to the sermon uh, uh, online this week, and, and um, he offered this, this tremendous challenge for us to consider our own desire uh, for healing, right? I found that to be really convicting and encouraging at the same time, and I pray that, um, that the Lord used that. Uh, uh, to encourage and convict your own hearts and to see Jesus as uh, the one willing to heal, right? This morning, we're gonna see what Jesus did in order to bring us the ultimate healing that we all need but would never ask for by his grace. We sang about that this, this morning already. If you had not loved me first, I would not love you still, right? And so we're gonna pick back up where we left off uh, from a couple weeks ago after Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate, where Pilate found no grounds for charging Jesus, but ultimately handed him over to be crucified anyway. Why? Because he wanted to satisfy the Jewish leaders who wanted Jesus dead. Uh, the second half of John 19 covers Jesus' crucifixion, his death, and his burial. We're going to look at all three of these things this morning. And while the reality of these events is most certainly a tragedy, we cannot miss this right? It's a tragedy when we consider that the, the only perfectly innocent man, the son of God himself, was tortured and murdered. While it's a tragedy, John's focus, his ultimate focus in, in his portrayal of this this morning, or in this passage, is on the triumph that came as a result of these tragic events. This morning, we're going to see that Jesus really died and that everyone who believes in him because of that is really forgiven. This is really good news for us. This is hope for us, right? This is God's word. I'm a man in need of God's word and his spirit and I wanna pray that he uh, speaks to me as he speaks through me and then we'll, we'll dig into the sermon this morning. Father, we thank you for your word that's faithful and true. We thank you for your spirit that leads us into all truth. We thank you for your son who is truth. And this morning we pray that that is what's conveyed here. The true message of the gospel in Jesus Christ, crucified, dead and buried. And even next week as we look at Jesus Christ resurrected. But this morning as we look at this cost, this sacrifice of your son, would you reach deep into our hearts and apply this to our lives. Would you speak to me as you speak through me that I might be uh, uh, encouraged and, and grow in Christ-likeness even as you've called me to preach your word together this morning to your church. Grow us all together in Jesus' name, amen. So last August, we started to refinish our basement at our, uh, our, our house. Okay? We moved in back in 2019 it had been previously finished twice, but in that time before we moved in, it was uh, it also flooded twice. And so finished, flooded, finished, flooded, right? And so now it's kind of sort of in this, that, that was in this sort of state of, of um, 
disarray, partially finished. Um, some of the drywall from, from the bottom around the, the floor had been ripped out and, and just replaced with um, some particle board or OSB. And so um, it was still sort of functional for us, and so we just kind of you know, left it and, and, and used it as it was. But we started this work back in August of last year, and we finished it uh, at, at the beginning of, of March this year, so about six months. Not, not terrible, right, when it comes to something like that. Um, but, but when I say that we finished it, I, I mean that it's now functional, right? If you've ever done a, a home renovation project, you're probably familiar with what I'm talking about, right? We're, we're finished means that all the major stuff is done. All the major stuff is done, right? We're about 90% of the way there. We got trim work left to do on the floor and the window and all that stuff. But, but here's the thing, right? Trim work doesn't keep us from using the basement, does it? And so it's kind of one of those things where it's like, it's good enough. Get to it later, right? You have a project like that? In our passage this morning, John is going to show us that when it comes to the work of salvation, finished means finished. Finished means finished. Jesus didn't do 90% of the work and call that good enough. He accomplished every last bit of the work that the Father had given him to do. This is why there is triumph in the tragedy of the crucifixion. So here's our main point this morning, okay? Because Jesus Christ really died on the cross, the work of salvation really is finished forever. Because Jesus Christ really died on the cross. John's going to prove that Jesus actually died as a human being. Because he really died on the cross, the work of salvation is really finished forever. Because this man who died is not just a man. He's the God-man. He's the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Again, this is incredibly good news for us. This is the heart of the gospel message. So let's dig in. Chapter 19, verse 16, um, B, if you will. Right under, probably it says the crucifixion in your, uh, in your heading there. Then they took Jesus away. Carrying the cross by himself, he went out to, the, to, to what is called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. Pilate also had a sign made and put on the cross. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign because the place where Jesus was, was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, what I have written, I have written. Now, if you remember from earlier in chapter 19, Pilate had Jesus flogged once already. It, wasn't the, it, it was the least severe form of beating, according to Roman custom. There were sort of three levels, but it was still enough, right? It was a beating nonetheless. It was still enough to leave Jesus bruised and battered and bloodied. Pilate brought him back out with the crown of thorns pressed into his head, purple robe, like just dripping in blood and said, here's your king, right? After Jesus was officially pronounced guilty and then taken away here in verse 16, John doesn't go into detail here, but, but uh, this would be where Jesus received the scourging, the, 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 the level three flogging, if you will, okay? 
that the pain was elevated to a whole new level. This, this flogging was done with this whip that was uh, multi-tailed and, and was designed to rip into the flesh every time it hit him. This is what John was, uh, 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 or excuse me, Roman custom was to make the, the condemned criminal carry the horizontal beam of the cross on his or her back. And yes, his or her back. They crucified women too. We need to understand that, that this, this act was not simply um, reserved for the Son of God. This was a Roman custom. And as custom would uh, have it, they would make the criminal carry this cross beam on their back out to the place where the vertical beam was already set. John says that that's what John means here when um, he said that Jesus was carried by the cross or carried the cross by himself, excuse me. Now the other three gospel writers all tell us that Simon of Cyrene carried that cross beam for Jesus, but but there's no contradiction there. John wasn't wasn't like changing the story or or correcting them. Listen, if you have been beaten and bloodied and whipped and scourged, you're going to be very, very weak, aren't you? You're going to carry that cross for a little bit, and then, and then you're not going to be able, to be able to carry it anymore. And so Jesus carried it by himself as far as he could in weakness, and then they recruited Simon of Cyrene to carry it the rest of the way for him. John doesn't include the detail about Simon because it's not necessary here to the purpose of his narrative. If you think of the four Gospels, they all tell the same thing to show that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, right? They all talk about the cross, the crucifixion, the death, the the burial, the resurrection. All those things are real events that took place that they're all pointing to, and yet they all give their perspective of it for the people that they're writing to. And John isn't... um, isn't focused on Simon of Cyrene here because his intent is to show the glory of Jesus in his complete obedience to the Father. This is why John doesn't really go into much detail at all about the pain and suffering of Jesus that he went through. He actually almost matter-of-factly states that Jesus was crucified between two criminals or between two others, right? And, and, and so it's not that John doesn't care about his Lord's pain and suffering We're going to see later uh, in this passage that John was standing right there at the cross. His main intent is to show what Christ gloriously accomplished through the cross. So what are some of the details that John actually gives us here? It says that the the crucifixion happened just outside of the city of Jerusalem in a very public place. So everyone could see it. Golgotha means skull in Aramaic. If, you're, uh, if you've ever used the word uh, Calvary, that comes from the Latin term that, that means skull, place of the skull. Pilate also had a sign made that stated the crime that Jesus was charged with, and he hung it on the cross with Jesus. That was also a common Roman practice. These other two criminals, uh, the, these insurrectionists that were actually guilty of their crimes and, and crucified uh, on either side of Jesus, they would have had signs of their own stating what they had done. But the chief priests, they were, they were unhappy with the wording of Jesus' sign, right? Now, Aramaic was the common language of the Jews that day. The Roman army spoke, um, spoke Latin, and everybody in the Roman Empire spoke Greek. And so uh, uh, it hit all the languages. It hit all the languages. Everybody could read this, this wording, Jesus Christ, the king of the Jews. The, the Romans crucified the condemned 
people in public and they hung these signs as a message of warning to all people. They didn't want to leave anybody out, so they used all the languages. A message of warning to all people about what happens to those who challenge Rome. The chief priests were happy that Jesus was being publicly humiliated, but they didn't like the fact that Pilate was sort of roping them into that by calling Jesus their king when they were the ones that wanted Jesus dead in the first place. And so they tried to get Pilate to change the wording on the sign, but he refused. What I've written, I've written, right? It's it's, uh, his way of getting this sort of last laugh and humiliating the Jews who had humiliated him with their own wordplay at Jesus' trial, if you remember that from uh, the end of chapter 18 and, and 19. We looked at it a couple weeks ago. Now, we've already seen from chapter 18, verse 38, that Pilate didn't really care about the truth. Remember, he said, what is truth? He's just dismissing it. He doesn't actually want to know. But John makes it clear here that Pilate wrote more than he realized because what he put on the sign was actually the truth. Jesus really is the king of the Jews. And the cross was God's chosen way to reveal the glory of that kingship. John begins his gospel, right, by saying we have observed his glory. The glory is the one and only Son of God, full of grace and truth. This is the glory. It's here at the cross. And as Christ's glory is revealed on the cross, what was initially a message of warning from the Romans to all people on that sign is actually now shown to be a message of hope from God for all people including you and me. Let's not miss the fact that we are reading this sign this morning in English, right? The Roman soldiers missed the value of the message because they were more concerned with the value of Jesus' possessions. And so let's keep reading. Look at verses 23 and 24. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but let's cast lots for it to see who gets it. This happened so that the scripture might be fulfilled that says, they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. This is what the soldiers did. Now again, Roman custom allowed the executioners to take what they wanted from the condemned criminal's possessions. And so these four, four soldiers, this execution squad, if you will, they divided up Jesus' possessions, his outer robe, his belt, his sandals, his head covering. Each one of them took what they wanted from those things, but they didn't want to cut up this tunic. You see the care that they gave for this piece of clothing while the Son of God was hanging on the cross above them? They didn't want to... They didn't want to cut this tunic up because it was more valuable as a single piece, and so they decided to gamble for it. And again, all this is happening while Jesus is torn to pieces, while he's hanging there on the cross with nails through his hands and feet, struggling in agony to to lift himself up in order to expand his chest cavity enough to take a breath every time. But again, John doesn't give us those details, and that's because he doesn't want us to miss the glorious reality that even these soldiers were callously serving, or even though these soldiers were callously serving themselves, they were unknowingly fulfilling Scripture. 
They might have been exerting, or at least thinking they were exerting their own will over Jesus in that moment, but they were actually carrying out the will of the Father. They were proving the kingship of Christ. The quote here is from Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. That psalm speaks of David suffering as a righteous king, and John quotes it here to show us that it's Jesus who actually suffered as the ultimate righteous king. Then he draws a sharp contrast between four Roman soldiers who couldn't care less about Jesus and four women who loved him deeply. Look at verse 25. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. And then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home One commentary on these verses noted, while the soldiers carry out their barbaric task and coolly profit from the exercise, the women wait in faithful devotion to the one whose death they can still only understand as a tragedy. It's heartbreaking. This is a heartbreaking scene, right? As Mary uh, helplessly watched the graphic execution of her firstborn son, Jesus made provisions for his mother even as he hung on the cross in agony and humiliation. Yes, it's a heartbreaking scene, but there's a beautiful moment of tenderness here. This son is providing for his mother. You remember back in chapter two, the very first sign that John records, Jesus turning water into wine. It was his mother who was standing there and told him that the wine had run out for the wedding party. Remember what he said to her? She told him that. He responded, what is this concern of yours to do with you and me, woman? My hour has not yet come. Now, if you remember from that chapter, we talked about how woman back in that day was, a, was a, not a derogatory um, word, but a, a polite term. It's like saying ma'am. But in addressing his, his mother, his own mother, his earthly mother, that way, Jesus was putting some relational distance between himself and her. Mary may have been his earthly mother, but in that moment, Jesus was reminding her and us that God is his heavenly father, and he came not to do his earthly mother's will. He came to do his heavenly father's will. That was the more important thing. And here, remember what he said, my hour has not yet come. And now that his hour has finally come, What do we find Jesus doing? Providing for his mother. Providing for his mother as he hung on the cross, carrying out the will of his heavenly father, he tenderly arranged for John to take care of her from that moment on. And notice what he said. Woman, here is your son. Not mother, here is your son. That's because Jesus' greater concern as he hung on the cross was to provide far more than the earthly needs of his mother. Her concern was for her dying son, but Jesus didn't need her to save his life. She needed him to save hers. His dying words then reveal that he was providing eternal forgiveness for sinners, including his own mother, So let's listen to those words. Look at verse 28. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, 
I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, and so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When he had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now, we need to understand this. Jesus was not mechanically checking off each step of the Father's plan as he was hanging there on the cross. He didn't think, okay, now I, I need to fulfill Psalm 69, 21, and so I'm going to tell them that I'm thirsty before I run out of breath to say it. No, he's the Word made flesh. He's God incarnate. And in his flesh, in his humanity, Jesus suffered tremendously. He said, I'm thirsty because he really was thirsty. That's what happens when the body loses a large amount of fluid through blood and sweat. When you have a crown of thorns pressed into your head, you've been whipped and beaten, mocked and slapped in the face, hanging on a cross in the middle of the day, you're going to be thirsty. His words take us back to chapter 4 where he met the Samaritan woman at the well and asked her for a drink. You remember that? After their conversation ended with Jesus revealing to her that he actually was the Messiah, she ran back into town to tell everybody all the things that he ever said about her, right? Remember that? And at that same time, the disciples were coming back from town and they came up to Jesus and they're like, Master, would you please eat something? Because he's hungry too, right? That's what happens when you've been traveling a long time. You know what he said to them? He responded this way. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. To finish his work. And then in chapter 17, right before he was betrayed and arrested by Judas, Jesus prayed to his father and said, I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work that you gave me to do, by finishing it. Knowing that the cross was the completion of that work, that was the finish line. Jesus made his thirst known, and when the soldiers held that dripping sponge up to his mouth, the sour wine quenched his parched throat enough for him to muster up one final cry of victory. It is finished. It is finished. Jesus knew that he was fulfilling the words of Scripture in that moment, but he also knew that he was completing the work of redemption in that moment. He received the sour wine from the soldiers. Why? Because he had already fully received the cup of wrath from the Father. Drank it to the dregs. Every last drop. God's righteous justice was completely satisfied and salvation for sinners was secured because Jesus paid the penalty in full for our sin by taking our place on the cross. Jesus accomplished what you and I could never accomplish for ourselves. He rescued us from sin and from death and purchased our complete forgiveness, total forgiveness absolute forgiveness and reconciled us to God forever. D.A. Carson captures it beautifully in these final two stanzas of a poem that he wrote about the cross. Listen to these words. Here's the one who says he cares for others, one who says he came to save the lost. How can we believe that he saves others when he can't get off that bloody cross? Let him save himself. 
Let him come down now. Savage jeering at the king's disgrace. But by hanging there is precisely how Christ saves others as the king of grace. Draped in darkness, utterly rejected, crying, why have you forsaken me? Jesus bears God's wrath alone, dejected, weeping the bitterest tears instead of me. All the mockers cry, he's lost his trust. He defeated, he's defeated by hypocrisy. But with faith's resolve, Jesus knows he must do God's will and swallow death for me. You see, that cross, that cross was my cross. And that cross was your cross. But because of his incredible love for us, Jesus willingly stepped in our place, in front of us. And what did he do? He made that cross his cross. He had no sin of his own to put in there. But instead, he took our sin upon himself and he gave his life as a sacrificial offering so that we could be completely forgiven forever. This was the work that the Father had given him to do. And this was the work that Jesus willingly completed, that he finished. The work of salvation is done. It's done. Our redemption is accomplished. It is finished. After Jesus completed the work, John says that, that Jesus gave up his spirit. This is John's way of reminding us uh, of what Jesus said in, in chapter 10, that no one takes his life from him. Instead, he lays it down on his own according to the Father's plan. It wasn't the Holy Spirit he gave up. It was his human spirit. He died. And he would die in the Father's timing and in no one else's. Look at verse 31. We'll go through 37. Since it was the preparation day that the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. And so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who had been crucified with him. And when they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you may also believe. His testimony is true, and he knows he's telling the truth. For these things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Excuse me. Not one of his bones will be broken. Also, another scripture says, they will look on the one that they have pierced. And yet again, we see the blatant hypocrisy of the religious leaders of the Jews. They were hyper-concerned about ceremonial purity while ignoring the reality that their hearts were incredibly defiled. The weekly Sabbath started at sundown on Friday. It ended at a Friday evening and it ended after dark on Saturday. The daylight hours of, of Friday every week then were known as preparation day because it was when the Jews did all the work that they needed to do before the Sabbath because when the Sabbath came, they weren't allowed to do any work at all. This preparation day happened to be a special one because it fell during the week of the Passover festival. Now, again, it was Roman custom to leave the criminals on the cross until they died, which could take hours or even days, and then to leave the bodies on the cross after death as a scare tactic to deter people from considering rebellion against Rome. 
But according to Jewish law, leaving dead bodies hanging on a pole overnight would bring defilement to the land, which in this case would have, would have detrimental consequences for being able to celebrate the Passover festival. There were a lot of people in the land at that time who came for that. The chief priest wanted the bodies taken down and buried before sundown in order to maintain the ceremonial purity so that they could continue in the Passover festival. And so they asked Pilate to speed up the execution. Roman soldiers used an iron mallet to break the legs of the criminals that hang on the cross so that they couldn't lift themselves up to breathe anymore. Then death would come quickly through suffocation. They didn't have to do that for Jesus, though, because when they came to him, they saw. It's important you understand this. They saw that he was already dead. Now, we know that's because he already gave up his spirit. John told us that already. And so instead of breaking his legs, they pierced his side. They thrust a spear into his ribs and, and, and make sure that he was really dead. John gives all these details for two reasons. One reason is to show his readers that even the way Jesus died is, is in fulfillment to the scriptures and according to the Father's sovereign plan. Passover instructions given to the Israelites all the way back in the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers required that they refrain from breaking any bones in the Passover lamb. Here John's showing Jesus to be the true Passover lamb who was sacrificed on our behalf, in place of his people. The prophet Zechariah wrote about God's promised shepherd who was yet to come. Here in verse 37, John quotes Zechariah 12.10 to show his readers that Jesus is the promised good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, which Jesus told us in John 10. The other reason John gives all these details is to prove that Jesus really died, right? This is super important. Jesus didn't just slip into a coma and then wake up a few days later he wasn't just a spirit who had the appearance of a body. Jesus is God in the flesh, God incarnate, the word made flesh who dwelt among us. He's fully God. He's fully human. He had a real body like you and I do, and that body was nailed to a cross. It was whipped and beaten, spit on. His side was pierced with a real spear, and blood and water really flowed from it. The Roman soldiers were witnesses to this. They saw it. And John was a witness to this. He saw it. And here he says, listen, I'm telling the truth. I was there. And he's telling the truth so that we who weren't there to see it with our own eyes might actually still believe that it really happened. Listen, if John's testimony is not true, if Jesus didn't really die, then the work of salvation is not complete. And we have no hope to rest in. We still owe God a payment for our sins if Jesus has not died. But if you don't believe John's true testimony because Jesus really did die, if you look at this and you say, no, I don't believe this, the work of salvation cannot be applied to you. It's finished work, but it cannot be applied to you. Only those who believe in the finished work of Christ are forgiven for their sins and reconciled to God. Think of the heartbreaking irony in this scene for a moment. These Jewish leaders are scrambling to do a bunch of work to prepare for the Passover in order to keep it. And they're doing this right after Jesus, the true Passover lamb, had just declared that the work was already done. How heartbreaking then would it be for you 
to hear John's testimony this morning and to see what the religious leaders missed, what the Roman soldiers missed, and to still walk out of here today thinking that you need something more than what Jesus has already provided. Do you know what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world? All the other religions of the world teach you that you have to do the work to get to God. Christianity doesn't just teach us, it shows us that God came to us. And he did all the work on our behalf. When every other religion says do, Christianity says done. John doesn't say in verse 35 that he's testified so that you may know what you need to do in order to pay Jesus back. He didn't say that. John says that he is testified so that you may also, what? Believe. This is the theme of his whole gospel. So that you may also believe. Believe what? That Jesus already paid the price in full for you. Why would you want to keep working for something that only Jesus can truly provide? I think we need to honestly answer this question this morning. Can you really say that you have something better to offer to the living God than the crucified Christ? Do you have something that Jesus doesn't? Can you give God what Jesus didn't? Why not trust in Jesus then and in his finished work? Confess, listen, confess the insufficiency of your own work, your own effort, and rest. Rest in the sufficiency of Christ in his work. This is what it means to be a Christian. Even though Jesus was already dead, he still needed to be buried before sundown, right? And the daylight hours were fading fast. The chief priests assumed that he would uh, uh, be shamefully buried in a common grave assigned to criminals, but there were two Jewish leaders who had a different idea. Let's finish this up. Verse 38 through 42. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission, and so he came and he took Jesus' body away. Nicodemus, who had previously come to him, Jesus, at night, also came, bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. They took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths with the fragrant spices, according to the burial custom of the Jews. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden. No one had been placed in it yet. They placed Jesus there because of the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby. Now, Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy member of the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish court, that, and, and he was secretly a, a disciple of Jesus, John tells us here. He was secretly a disciple of Jesus because he was afraid of his fellow Jewish leaders, these ones that were hating Jesus and demanding that he be crucified, these ones that were telling Pilate, hey, don't, don't write king of the Jews, write that he said I'm the king of the Jews. But Joseph's courage and his love for Jesus won out this time. Jesus was very publicly executed. This, this taking down of Jesus' body, Joseph would not be able to keep that a secret. He couldn't do that in hiding. Nicodemus was also a wealthy member of the Sanhedrin. He came to Jesus under the cover of night back in chapter 3, if you remember. But here he was stepping out of darkness and into the light, right? 
In their conversation at night, Jesus told Nicodemus, listen, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so too the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. No doubt Nicodemus finally understood what Jesus meant by those words as he helped Joseph prepare Jesus' body for burial here. Again, all the details that John gives us here are meant to prove that Jesus really was dead. But they also show us that he wasn't buried in shame as a criminal. He was buried in honor as a king. Isaiah 53.9 says he was assigned a grave with the wicked. This is, this is talking about God's suffering servant. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and he was a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. John's already proven this point that, that, uh, that it, all of this happened in fulfillment of scripture. And so here Isaiah, this, this Isaiah passage is, is just implied. We get to find that one out on our own. It's like, you know this by now, right? This is what John is saying. So he doesn't directly quote it. Jo- Joseph and Nicodemus placed Jesus in a new tomb all by himself. John ends this section by telling us that they placed Jesus there because of the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby, it was convenient. They could get him there before sundown. The proximity of the, of the new tomb allowed them to do that before the Sabbath began, before they had to rest from their work. Now listen, when we bury someone who's died, the phrase that we often use is that we lay them to rest right? Remember what God did back in Genesis 2 after he finished the work of creation? He rested. What did the Son of God do right here after he finished the work of redemption? He rested. They laid him to rest. As Jesus' body was laid to rest in an empty tomb, the Jews were entering into the Sabbath rest, No more work could be done. No more. It's a fitting picture to end on, right? The work of salvation is finished. There is no more work to be done. No more work that can be done. There is only rest in Jesus Christ. You might say, but if he really knew me, he'd never forgive me. You need to hear the words of Jesus again. It is finished. But I've done a lot of really bad things. It is finished. I've hurt people deeply. It is finished. But I've done unforgivable things. It is finished. But I'm such a hypocrite. It is finished. I'm so embarrassed, though. It is finished. But no one's ever really loved me. It's finished. But I keep failing. It is finished. You see, if you're sitting here this morning ashamed of yourself because of your sin, you need to know that no amount And no degree of sin can undo the finished work of Jesus Christ. That he accomplished the work of redemption that Jesus accomplished on the cross. It's finished. What is there left to do for us? It is to believe in that work. 
and rest in him. What if I just try to be a better person? It is finished. What if I just pray more? It is finished. What if I just work a little harder? It is finished. What if I read my Bible more? It is finished. What if I just go to church more regularly? It is finished. What if I give more? How about I buy that air conditioner? It's finished. What if I serve more? It is finished. You see, if you are sitting here thinking that you can avoid the cross by living a good life, you need to know that no amount and no degree of work that you do can add to the finished work of Jesus Christ. This work of redemption that only he accomplished on the cross, it is finished. I want to tell you this directly, but I want you to hear that these words are words I need to remember all the time. Jesus doesn't need your help. You need his. I need his. A good life is not good enough for God. You need a perfect life. Anybody have that? The only person who's ever lived a perfect life laid his life down on the cross in order to rescue us from ourselves. Our work is not a strenuous requirement for that rescue. It is a worshipful response to that rescue. And so we strive. We still strive to obey God's word and do whatever a follower of Christ does according to the word of God. But we do so in the power of the Holy Spirit that he's provided for us. We do so in trust that the finished work of redemption is enough. That Jesus is enough. We do so as we believe in him and as we rest in him. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't treat redemption like a basement project? He didn't do 90% of the work and call it good enough. No, he came to complete the work down to every last detail. Didn't John just prove that for us? Because Jesus Christ really died on the cross, the work of salvation really is, really is finished forever. But you know, if you are reading along with us, this story is not finished, right? That tomb was empty before they put Jesus into it, and guess what? It's going to be empty again very, very soon. We're going to see that next week when we look at the, re the resurrection in chapter 20. The resurrection is proof that the work of redemption is complete. It guarantees the application of that work. It guarantees eternal life for all who trust in Christ's finished work. Now the sermon is finished, and some of you are probably thinking, praise God. But listen... The glories of our gracious king will never end. They'll never end. So may we never finish declaring the praises of the one who finished the work of redemption on our behalf. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that we don't have to bring anything, nothing in my hand I bring to the cross we cling. 
We thank you, Lord, that, that Jesus died for us. We thank you that he's not still on the cross, that the sacrifice was enough, and you proved that through the resurrection. There's no debt left for us to pay. And we pray, Lord, that you would enable us to live between the already finished work of Christ and the, the, the final triumphant return of our gracious King fully independent upon him, fully confident in him, not trying to add to that work that's already been done and not living in shame or guilt because he's erased it all. We love you. We thank you for Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Let's stand up and sing together. It is finished.